Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The last thing we saw was the apostles had been arrested. They had been released miraculously from the jail in the middle of the night. Then they had been brought before the council, commanded not to preach in Jesus' name. They wanted to kill them, but Gamaliel stood up and said, guys, if it's of the Lord, we can't stop it. If it's not of the Lord, it's going to fizzle out anyway. And the apostles had received 39 lashes each and then turned loose. But it said that they continued every day to preach and teach. And now we get to chapter 6. And this is, in a lot of ways, the high point of the church in Jerusalem before the persecution hits. I mean, they've already been beaten, so it's not like persecution hasn't begun. But from this point on, it's going to be one challenge after another, mixed in with victories as well. But, you know, we talked about that honeymoon period that the church had when the Holy Spirit first came. This is about the last set of verses in that honeymoon period, as I would call it. And it's uncertain as to exactly when. We don't know exactly how long it's been because he just says in these days when the disciples were increasing. And this is going to be contrasted to a chapter or two later when the church is scattered. He says, in those days this happened. And Luke felt the need to share this story because there are the seeds of so many other stories in the book of Acts in this chapter. This is the first real confrontation between the insiders and the outsiders, you could say. And that's a huge theme of the book of Acts, how the gospel just expands all over the world, bringing in more and more people. This is where we meet Philip, who's going to take the gospel to Samaria. This is where we're going to meet Stephen, of course, who was the first martyr. This is even when we see lay ministry begin, if we want to use that term. It, no longer is it just the apostles, but now it's expanding to the rest of the church. And it's also the first instance of an interpersonal problem in the church. Up till now, it's been the church and the Sanhedrin. It's been the Lord against Ananias and Sapphira. But now we've got people in the church who are upset with each other. And there are thousands upon thousands of Christians. So it was only a matter of time, wasn't it? But I love this because the way that the apostles handle this and the way that the congregation handles this is so instructive for us. Nobody's going to get mad and storm out and start a blog about how the apostles are terrible people. And they're not going to be yelling and hollering and screaming and beating people down. It's, it's an example of how we handle issues in the church. Now, what was that issue? We're introduced to a group of people called the Hellenists. This is an important term. It's a reference to... Hellas. If you don't know what Hellas is, you probably know it by the term Greece. The country Greece, the name Greece, comes from the Latin word Gracche, which is what they called the Hellenes. The Grecian people call themselves Hellas. That is the name of Greece in the Greek language. And they refer to themselves as Hellenes, and their country is Hellas. Even today, their official name is Democratic Republic of Hellas. And we use the Latin name for some reason, and I don't know why, but we do. So when you see that word Hellenist, it's related to Greece. What happened was when Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire, his strategy to maintain control was to bring Grecian culture to the rest of his empire. They would bring 
their culture. They'd bring their dress. They would bring their language. People began to speak Greek all over the, the world, really. They began to spread their religion. You ever notice how the Roman gods are really the, the Greek gods, but with a different name? That was the same thing. They brought the, the Olympics. They brought the gymnasium. They brought the philosophy. It was brought everywhere. And their, their goal was to go to whatever city you go to and make it like a Greek city. And the idea being, if we all share one culture, there's not going to be rebellion. There's not going to be fighting amongst them. And this had a very strong impact, especially on the Jewish community in two different ways. Those who were in the diaspora, which means the dispersion, those who were not living in Israel, they went right along for the most part with the Hellenization. They started to dress like Greeks. They started to speak Greek. They started to use the Greek translation of the Bible, the Old Testament, called the Septuagint instead of the Hebrew scriptures. They were still Jews, but culturally they looked like Greeks. Now, back home in Israel, you had a conflict because you had some Jews who went along with that and you had others. There was one group in particular called the Pharisees who said, no, we're not doing that. We're maintaining our, our Hebrew culture. We're maintaining our Hebrew language. We're maintaining the way we dress as Hebrews. And there was a very sharp disagreement between the Hebrews, which Jewish Christians, I mean, they're really all, they're all Jews here, but these are Israeli Jews, you could say, and the Hellenists, which are Jews that had accepted Greek culture. Now in the church, in Galatians 3.28, it says there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So in the church, those barriers were to be broken down, right? We do not discriminate. We bring everybody in because everybody needs Jesus, especially over things like this, where their beliefs were the same, but they dressed a little different. That was not going to be an issue in the Lord's church. But there was a complaint because they had this daily distribution where they would bring food, they would bring money to the widows. What would happen a lot of times back then, and in some ways still happens, is a Jewish widow, no matter where she lived, if she lost her husband and lost her family, she would move to Israel so that she could die in Jerusalem. That was a very cultural thing. So you've got all these widows moving there, and there was a system of distribution in the Hebrew culture, and the church adopted this as well, because if now this widow has converted and become a Christian, very unlikely she's gonna be taken care of by the Hebrew distribution. So they took this upon themselves. But the problem was, the Greek Christians, or you could not really Greek Christians, the Hellenistic Jewish Christians are saying, you are overlooking our widows in this distribution. They're not getting what they're supposed to be getting. And the word there for neglect is paratheoreo in Greek. It means to overlook, literally it means to look past something. So they're saying they're being overlooked. You're missing them. And I like this complaint. This is a little lesson that I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, but they're not coming to the apostles and accusing them of being evil, wicked people that are abusing our, our widows. They're saying they're being overlooked. They're giving each other the benefit of the doubt. I love that. You know, when something's wrong in the church, it's probably not best to start with, well, I want an explanation of this. You say, hey, it looks like some things are falling through the cracks. That's love. That enables us to to work things out together. Because if you start and you're aggressive and you're right there on the edge, now all of a sudden you've provoked aggression in somebody else. Now there's a fight instead of a discussion of how to fix the problem. I think the most likely scenario here, and I say this because I'm a pastor and I've been around pastors and I know how we are. I'll bet you the apostles were handling this distribution themselves. I bet you they had said, hey, we got to feed the widows. We got to take care of the hungry. We got to take care of people who have needs. Jesus taught us that. So let's do it. That was great when you had 120 people. 
But now you had 3,000 and then 5,000. You probably over 10,000 or more families, not people, families coming to this church. And they can't handle it all. It's just 12 of them. And things start falling through the cracks. Things were starting to slip. Maybe they weren't as familiar with the Hellenistic Jews because they probably hadn't lived in Jerusalem, so they didn't have as close a, a friendship connection. Doesn't say. The point is, things had grown so large that they could no longer do everything themselves. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 18, because there is a great Old Covenant parallel to this story. Exodus chapter 18. You probably want to write these passages in the margins of the other ones because they're, they're so close to each other, and it's important. Well, this is in Exodus 18 when the Jews have been brought out of the land of Egypt and Jethro, who's Moses' father-in-law, is showing up with Moses' wife and kids. He says, hey, good, you're out of Egypt. Let me bring them on down. And in verse 13, Jethro is going to get a little look at what Moses does every day. Verse 13, the next day Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties and tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. So, you see the picture here. Moses brought probably a couple million Israelites out of the land of Egypt. And he is the only one with any authority to judge. So day in and day out, from morning till night, people are lining up with their problems. And it didn't matter whether it's a discussion of inheritance or whether it's, I don't like her and I don't like her and so I'm finding a way to sue her. Moses is handling every single issue. And his father-in-law sees that and says, what you are doing is not good, get some help. So you're going to wear yourself out. He said, you're not going to be any good to anybody if you don't stop. And this is similar to what we're seeing in the book of Acts, where the apostles were trying to do everything, and they couldn't do it, and now stuff is starting to slip. Important things are starting to slip, because while they are not accusing them of anything, you can see very quickly how people could start to grumble and say, they hate us Hellenists, just as much as the Pharisees do. What are we sticking around here for? Was that true? No. But because they had not properly taken care of the distribution, they were susceptible to that accusation. 
There are people who think that the pastor should do everything in the church. And most of those people are pastors. They think that I've got to do everything. And there is some external pressure too. Well, that's what we pay you for. Your job is to preach and teach and do all the visitation and do all the work and vacuum the floors and talk to the, the bill company and everything. You're, you're supposed to handle all that. And most of that, though, comes from the pastors themselves. I don't want to come in and say, now y'all listen here, because this is mostly our fault. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. Sometimes it's ego, right? Well, if I give away any of my authority, then I have less authority. So I'm going to hold on to all of it. Sometimes they're just enthusiastic. I'm just so excited. I want to do everything. I show up early. I stay late because I want to get it all done. Sometimes it's naivete. I can handle it. But most church leaders try to do too much and then hit their limit very quickly. Everybody has a limit and we do that. We hit them. So the apostles have hit their limit. They have hit the limit of the amount of ministry they are able to do, just the 12 of them. So they're going to respond the right way. It's nice to read a good example out of scripture sometimes. So let's read verses two through four now. So they brought this before them and the 12, verse two, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, this is worth underlining here. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This is perhaps the most significant passage in the Bible related to the role and the work of a church leader, specifically a pastor. The idea that the pastor or the staff even should do all the work while the people show up and just receive the benefits or supply the funds, that is entirely foreign to scripture. That is not the way God set up his church. You see how the apostles handled this because we've got to handle this need because if they had said, okay, we'll fix this. Now they're going to be drawn away from prayer and the ministry of the word. And they say, that's not good. That is their most important task and their most important calling. This is very, very important. They were not above waiting tables. I think it's very likely they had been waiting tables. They're not saying we're too good for this. They're saying God has something else for us to do. And there are capable people able to handle this. This is important, and no pastor and nobody who ever wants to serve in a church should ever think that anything is beneath them. It's all holy. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Whether you're vacuuming the floors, whether you're getting cobwebs out from between the lights, or you're cleaning the toilets, or washing the kids, or picking up cigarette butts in the parking lot, it's all holy. We don't think about things. That's how the world thinks about stuff. Well, that's the more public position. The Bible says, yeah, your eyes are more public than your kidneys, but you really need those kidneys. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Every pastor must be willing to be abased. But there are certain tasks that only the pastor can do and only the pastor or leader has been called to do. In the apostles' instance, there were other people that could do this. So why should they be the ones doing it? They're going to stick to the most important things. And they're going to lay it out right here. A pastor's two main priorities. So I've got to preach to myself for a little bit here. Listen up good so you can hold me to it. Number one, the ministry of the word. Number two is prayer. First of all, a pastor's job is the ministry of the word. To read and study the scriptures, to gain a thorough understanding of it so that he can teach and guide and instruct other people on what it says. 
The Bible is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word. It's our guide for life. It's our guide for faith. The shepherd's job is to be the one who understands it and knows it better than anyone else. You know, this, this phrase is used to make a different point, so I don't want to knock it down, but it, it does make this illustration very clear. A lot of times pastors will stand up and say, I don't have all the answers. I don't supposed to have all the answers. Now, in one sense, yes, you should go to the Lord because God has all the answers. But in another sense, the pastor is to know what the Bible says so that he can give answers. That's his job, is to be the one that knows that book that's sitting in your lap better than anybody else. To know what it says so that when someone comes and has a question, and asks the pastor, he has an answer for them. Or at the very least, he knows where to go to get one. <laughs> That's important. We see this in Ezra. Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. Ezra was the scribe that went with the exiles back from the land of Babylon. They finally go back, and Ezra is there. And this is how it describes him. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That's the role of a pastor rolled up real tight. To study the word, to do it, and to teach it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 15, Paul wrote to Timothy, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Literally, rightly dividing the word of truth. He's like, you've got to know how to parse this thing. You've got to understand it. You've got to work hard at understanding the word so that the Lord looks at you and approves of the hard work that you've done. There are things in the Bible that are difficult to understand. One of my favorite little verses in the New Testament, Peter is writing about Paul in one of his epistles, and he says, yeah, some of that stuff Paul writes, it's kind of hard to understand. <laughs> Peter said that. So it should make us feel a little bit better about some of the stuff that Paul wrote. But it's true. There are things, especially I think in the Old Testament, that they're tough to understand. What did you mean by that? What did you mean exactly by that? How do these verses fit together, for example? And a lot of times, it's just an ignorance about what the Bible says, right? I've been reading through the major prophets again lately. So that's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. There are so much stuff in there. <laughs> Every time I read it, I feel like I haven't read it before. Even though I can see all the underlinings and highlighting from the last time I read it, I'm like, how did I miss this? This is so key. I like, for example, the last time I was reading through Jeremiah, I'm like, Jesus got a lot of the things he said from here. And so that, that's amazing. And then that makes me start thinking, okay, so I should read through what Jesus said again with Jeremiah in, in view and see, okay, how do these two things relate together? And it reminds us, among other things, that Jesus was not bringing something brand new, but he was the continuation of what God was doing through the Old Testament. It's that kind of thing, just to know what it says. And there are tons of theological issues and apologetics issues and people that come up with weird ideas and assaults that come from outside the church. A pastor is to be conversant with those issues so that he can lead the church well. And let me tell you, it takes work to do that well. It takes work to study and preach and teach. It is a full-time job, just that. In addition to all the other things that we're supposed to do, it is intense. And the Lord understood that. This is why Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5, when he's uh, writing to Timothy about how a church should work, he says, Let those who rule well among you be worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word. Especially those people who spend time studying the Bible and preaching and teaching. He said, those people should be honored among you. And he also says they should be financially compensated so they can continue to do that. That's what the New Testament teaches because it recognizes this isn't something you can do on the way to church. Okay, let's see, what am I going to talk about today? I'll talk about love again. Me, no, you've got to get in it. 
And this is the hardest thing. I've trained a lot of young guys that wanted to be pastors. This is the hardest thing for a lot of them to learn. This is work. You've got to read it and read it again and read it again and read it again and then say, okay, what verse does that remind you of? Go read that. Get some good books from godly men who have already done the work and see what they had to say. Spend time in prayer and now go through and prepare how you can minister and teach it to somebody else. That's a lot of work. It's important. And this is why the Lord set aside certain people in the church. That's their job (laughs) is to minister and study in the word. That's a pastor's job. There's a phrase the Bible uses of being mighty in the scriptures, being mighty in the word. A pastor is not to be a motivational speaker, not to be a professor. Those are the two opposites, right? There's some, some pastors that they're motivational speakers. They show up and they're exciting and it's awesome and you're out, outside in the parking lot and you're revved up and you're ready to go, but you can't remember a single word they said. Then you got other guys that are professors and I probably lean more this way, I'll be real honest with you, where they get all this information, we don't know how to, how to pare it down to what's important, and then you sit through lectures every Sunday morning. Well, that's no good either. A pastor is to be right in the middle, a pastor, to apply the truths of the Bible to real life and to blend the best of both of those things because it's not just my job to know this. You need to know it too. It's my job to teach it to you. But at the same time, the word has to live. The word has to be brought to life in you. So you know the truth. How does that change the way that I live my life? It's called application. And it would be really easy for me to stand up and say, and this kind of preaching is is falling by the wayside in the church. Yeah, it is, but you know what? It's been falling by the wayside like since the beginning. There's been a very long tradition of men having to hold fast. This is what the Bible says, and this is what we're going to do. And there are people across denominational lines that are doing it right. And it's it's good, and I try my best to do it right. But I'll tell you, when, when ministry starts to build up, and there's... The widow's distribution has got to be taken care of, and there's this thing and that thing, and there's a lot that's got to be done. It is far too easy for the pastor to set aside the ministry of the word to focus on those things. And the apostles are saying, we're not going to do that. It would not be right, verse 2, they said. It would not be right for us to do that. And this is an old-fashioned idea, but that's okay. That's what the word says, and that's all we're really interested in. That's the first thing, ministry of the word. The second one is prayer. The top two tied for first place priorities of a pastor in the church is the ministry of the word and prayer. A pastor is to spend regular, deep time in prayer and communication with God, both to intercede on behalf of the people and to receive direction for the church. He's got to be hearing from God to know what the Lord says as they move forward. You know, it's becoming tough and you guys are really starting to frustrate me now. I used to be able to pray for every single person by name in this church without even have to think. Now I've got to consult the list. So you're making it really hard on me, you guys. Remember when Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he came down and there was the demon-possessed boy and the disciples couldn't cast it out and they said, why? And Jesus said, this kind can only come out through what? Prayer and fasting. And Jesus was ready because he had been praying and he had been fasting. There are spiritual victories that can only be won through diligent prayer. So the Lord set aside certain people in the church to always be in prayer and fasting. A pastor should never encounter a situation like those disciples where he's not prayed up because that's his job is to be prayed up and ready to go. That when people come up front and they have problems and they have issues and they have questions that he's ready to go. That when he goes out and he encounters people that he's ready to go. That's a pastor's job. 
Be in constant prayer. Bible says, pray without ceasing. Listen, it's hard sometimes when you've got a lot going on, but the Lord says, my pastors especially, make it so that they have time to always be in prayer. So you've always got a couple guys that are just revved up and ready to go when the spiritual battles come in. Now this might seem like a waste of time, especially, let me say, to motivated pastors, to guys who are kind of like me, and there are guys that are even worse than I am, that love to do things. Let's go make something happen. Let's come up with something that we can we can tangibly touch. You know, let, let's get the building going. Now that the building's going, let's get some ministries going. Now that that's done, let's write some more pamphlets. Now that that's done, let's work on the website. That's me. I am always constantly looking to the next thing. And that's good. You want that. But the temptation there is to look at prayer as a waste of time. Say, so, well, yeah, but there's a lot of things to do and I've got to pray. Look, I'll throw in my prayer, then we'll get to the real work. That's not how the Lord told us to do that. When the apostles who were, remember, these are James and John, sons of thunder. Peter, let me come out on the water. It's these guys, these fiery young men who were presented with this opportunity to bring the Hellenists and the Hebrews together. And they said, nope, we need to spend more time in prayer. That's key. That should impress us. Okay, they thought that was important. Because prayer is like a muscle. You know that, right? If you haven't prayed for a long time, prayer is like the hardest thing you've ever done in your entire life. And like there's nothing difficult about it. You know, there's not like you're straining. It's not like you've got to be bench pressing while you're praying. But it's like a spiritual muscle. When you exercise it, it gets stronger. So God calls his shepherds to be in the spiritual gym every day so that they're ready. And here's the thing. We say, well, I can do more ministry if I don't pray. Ministry done apart from prayer has osteoporosis. It's not going to last. It's not going to be as strong. It might look really great. You might not notice anything, but it hasn't been built on that spiritual foundation. Even Jesus, in Luke chapter 5, verses 15 through 16, it said, Even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. People were packing out everywhere Jesus went. Crowds were coming in. Imagine if people are sitting on the floor in here. We brought in every chair we can possibly bring in. Eventually we say, forget it, take the chairs out. We can fit more people that way. Let's open up that door back there so they can see. And then people are pressing in at the windows and there's a crowd outside and people are squabbling in the vestibule to try and get in. And then all of a sudden, boom, somebody falls through the drop ceiling. That's what it was like when Jesus was doing ministry. But you know what he would do? He would leave the crowds, go out into the desert where nobody could find him, and pray. Because he says, this is so important. Even though there's all this ministry to be done, I need to be in prayer. Because Jesus said, I don't do anything unless I've heard the Father say it first. So if he's not hearing from the Father, what is he going to do? It's the same for us. A pastor's job is a spiritual one. We know that, right? But we've got to be reminded sometimes. This is a spiritual place. This is not a Christian club. This is certainly not a new startup business venture. It's not even a charity. This is a church. Does the church include elements of all those things? Yes, but you can't categorize it like that. The church is its own thing. This is the house of the Lord where people come to find God, to be equipped for their ministry, and then to go out and do what God's called them to do. And people want to categorize a pastor. Well, is he a political figure? Oh, y'all, that is such a temptation because I've got a pulpit I've got a platform. I can put stuff online. If I wanted to start putting my political views in there, it would be so easy. And I could wrap it up in scripture so that it looks like I'm teaching the Bible, when in reality, I'm just spouting off whatever I saw 
in some podcast or whatever I watched on TV the other day, and all of a sudden you're preaching somebody else's word, then it's not even the word of God. Guys, that happens all the time. You even see these people on TV that it's some pastor coming in and they bring them on TV to interview them about some political issue. And that's fine. I'm not down on that. But you see them talk and you can tell which one of these guys are actually pastors because it's it, it just different about the way they speak. These guys are like, they can't talk five seconds without bringing up the scripture or bringing up the gospel or bringing up what Jesus has done. And it's, it's heartbreaking, but it's also refreshing to see some of these guys on TV because it frustrates all the hosts. Like, would you talk about something else other than Jesus for like five seconds? And then they got some other guy who's like, ah, hollering and screaming and trying to get him mad. And they're just sitting there in the peace and the joy of the Lord responding back. It's that, that's who we're supposed to be. And so you bring on one of those guys a couple times and say, forget it. He doesn't make for good TV. Get him out of here. That's awesome. I love that. Do we sometimes bleed over there? Yeah, maybe if there's something that we've got to get involved in, but it's not our first, second, or third job. Way down the list somewhere. Well, a pastor is a community figure. Can I just be real with us for a second? Not anymore. Pastors are not community leaders anymore. Some of them maybe are, but that, is, that era of the United States has passed, at least for now. And we can try to put pastors in those roles, and it almost feels awkward. Like, well, are you going to be on the city council? Are you going to do this? Are you going to do that? And none of those things are wrong, but it's like, this is my job here, to be a spiritual leader. Or even like a motivator or an organizer of good works. Some pastors, that's what they do. I'm just here to make sure that we can do as much good charity as possible. Even that is not the pastor's job. Does he do some of that? Yes. But it's not the first job. Pastor is a pastor. It's, it's, it's a definition all of its own. His job is to lead the church through the ministry of the word and prayer. There's a great quote here from Simon J. Kistemacher, who is a commentator. He said, a pastor, strictly speaking, is not a minister of the church, even if he's ordained by that body. He's not a minister of a local congregation, even though a church council or board supervises his work and pays his salary. A pastor is first and foremost a minister of Christ's gospel, for Jesus sends him forth to teach and preach the good news. The pastor then is a servant of God's word. And that's important. And that's written primarily, in that context anyway, to pastors. Because he's reminding them, you need to do what the Lord has called you to do and not get distracted by all this other stuff. A pastor is a shepherd. That's where that word pastor comes from, right? It's related to the word pasture. You talk about a pastoral scene. There's always a little sheep out in the background, right? He's a shepherd. He leads the sheep. He comforts the sheep. He strikes the sheep when necessary. He finds pastor for them. And even the apostles would not stoop from that role. Even though there was something that needed to be done, it was important, it needed to be done. But they said, if we start doing that, we're going to have to leave behind the ministry of the word and prayer, and that's no good. Just like Jethro told Moses, said, Moses, represent God to the people and represent the people to God. Teach the people, pray for them, Handle the big stuff, but give the rest of it away because this stuff is too important. So those are the two pastor's roles. But there's more. They don't say it explicitly here, but they demonstrate it. A pastor's third job is to equip the saints to do the work. The apostles did not look down on the widow's ministry. This is ridiculous. You're going to bring this to us? I'm just going to keep doing what I've always done, and you guys need to just learn to suck it up and be quiet. They did not do that. And Peter would not have been afraid to say things like that, as we know. But they relinquished it 
to capable men so they could focus on their priorities. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12 says, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers the leadership in the church. Why did he give the church leaders? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The leaders in the church are to facilitate ministry done by the body. By empowering the church to serve. Put it in one word, by delegating. By giving stuff away for other people to do. Widow's ministry. We don't have to do that. You do it. I'm going to judge all the tribes of Israel. Actually, we're going to set up a system here. And you guys do the work. It's true for us. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's always this thing in the church of handing stuff off to other capable people. Some pastors are jealous. and They, they want to hoard their power, as I said. If I let somebody else do that, then they're not going to need me to do that. And then they might start thinking that that person's more capable than me. I can't do that. That's no good. Some of them are just too proud of their own abilities. This is true too. I do it better. <laughs> and maybe it's true. <laughs> maybe you could do it better. Maybe the apostles would do a better job of overseeing the widow's ministry than these guys. But that's no good. Others are just too busy to look up and think for a minute. There's too much going on, I can't even get my head up to notice, hey, there's a bunch of people out there that are ready to help. Maybe I should get them involved. Dwight Moody said, it is better to put 10 men to work than to do the work of 10 men. That's important because you raise the capacity of the ministry. And guess what? That is itself ministry, is by raising up other people to do things. And there are some guys that they are unwilling to adjust or dismantle the structure. And what you do is you destroy further ministry that way. Well, they can't do it as good as me. You're right. But they never will until they step up and do it. Right? This was another part of that process I would go through. I was like, I want you to bring in this young guy. I want you to let him help you. Oh, I don't know. He's kind of flaky. He's, he's not really as good as me. And, you know, he doesn't really understand. Yeah, well, you've been doing it for 14 years. <laughs> He's 14 years old. <laughs> Let him help. And then if he does it for seven years, he'll be really, really good. And then the next thing you know, oh, I don't know what I'd do without them. That's what has to be done in the church. Because we are not so worried, at least in this church, of everything being done perfect. It is more important to have everybody engaged and involved with an opportunity to sacrifice their time and their energy for the Lord. If we're so focused on everything being snappy and sharp and perfect, and I like snappy. I like everything to be good. I think it's the Lord's house. It should be done well. But the most important thing is that the body of Christ is engaged. And the apostles knew that. So what do they say? All right, you want to do the widow's ministry? We love it. Nominate seven people. Nominate seven guys and we'll see. So let's read verses five and six. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Wish I could have that on my tombstone. And Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So now we see the first servants in the church other than the apostles. Does not use the word deacon here. That's really a, a Western word that we took to mean something official. That wasn't really an official term in the Bible, but that's essentially what they are. The word diakonos in Greek means servant. They're bringing in other people besides the pastors to do ministry. 
And do you notice again, briefly, how the church loved each other enough to accept the solution to the conflict? Sometimes we can get so wrapped up in our issues that when a solution is presented, we can't accept it because we're just so angry. We're so mad. It's not just the way I wanted it. Maybe they thought, oh, but you know, Bartholomew and other Philip and Andrew, they've been doing such a good job with the widows. Why can't they just do that? Stephen and Nicanor and Simone, like they're good guys, but like they're not going to do as good a job. They accepted the solution to the problem. Sometimes we've just got to learn to do that, to accept the solution, to love each other enough just to move past whatever the conflict is. Very good here. Well, they appoint these men according to the qualifications we saw in verse 3, which if I read that again, men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And there are some future rock stars in the church in this list here, you guys. Stephen, we're going to talk about him all next week. The first martyr. And I I don't want to say too much about him, but he's one of my favorite guys in scripture. Philip. Philip would bring the gospel to the Samaritans. He also would have four daughters who were prophetesses. It's really a very cool story. We're going to see Philip a lot. Prochorus, we're not going to see any of these other guys again, but Prochorus traditionally in the church was a traveling companion of John the Apostle. And some people even speculate that he may have even been the one that transcribed the Gospel of John. Does not say, it's tradition. He traditionally and historically was uh, the bishop of a place called Nicomedia. So you can see he went from helping out the widow's distribution to being a leader in the church, and the Lord used him in an amazing way. We don't really know anything else about these other guys except this one, Nicholas. It says he was a proselyte. A proselyte was a non-ethnic Jewish convert. He had been born a Gentile and had converted to Judaism at some point. That's what that word proselyte meant. This is important because already we're starting to see the bounds of the church are expanding beyond strictly Jews. It was Jerusalem Jews and now it's Hellenistic Jews. Now we're even bringing proselytes into the fold and we're giving them jobs to do. And he's from Antioch. It's the first reference to Antioch in the book of Acts. We're going to see a lot of the city of Antioch. So that's what I mean. There's little seeds of all kinds of cool things that are going to come back later. So remember this. And all of them had Greek names. We can't be sure, but it could be that the Hellenists were worried that they were being overlooked. So they said, pick seven Hellenists and they'll run the distribution. That way we can know and be sure that it's being done right. But do you see that the primary qualifications for these guys were spiritual? They're just handing out food. Why do we need people that are full of the Spirit? That's how the church works. Every ministry in the church is spiritual, even if it is not, strictly speaking, spiritual. A lot of guys, even young ladies that want to serve the Lord. We were in Lynchburg with Liberty University. A lot of guys, young preachers-to-be would come in. I'm so excited. I want to serve. What can I do? I said, okay, uh, we need someone to help us vacuum the sanctuary. We need somebody to clean the toilets. We need somebody to come out and mow the lawn. Man, getting people to mow the lawn, that was always... Always a challenge. We had a bunch of hills and people didn't want to do it. But, well, I was really thinking something more with a pulpit involved. Something where, you know, people could see me. And, you know, there was a lot of those guys that needed to learn that lesson. And there are some of them that didn't want to learn that lesson. And they just looked and knocked on the door of every church in town until they found one that would let them preach. That's no good. We serve because it is in obedience to the Lord. And we serve because we love the people that we're serving, Right? Let's run through these three qualities because these three qualifications apply to you because these were guys who were not pastors. They were not ordained in that sense. They were just members of the church that were serving. And every one of you has been called to serve in the church. So these three things are things that you ought to be striving for. Enough talking about me. It's your turn for a few minutes. (laughs) Number one, 
They were men of good repute. The first thing is they were men of integrity. Their character was unimpeachable. There were people that you looked at them and that's a good guy. We could expand. That's a good lady. That's, that's awesome. I went to a Christian school and there were people that sang on that worship team that poisoned the worship service because everybody in the audience knew what he did when he was not on stage. Everybody knew that she was like that when she was not up there. And they're up there singing and swaying and raising their hands and everybody's sitting there with their arms folded like, yeah, right. A lack of integrity will poison the ministry, especially hypocrisy. That's what it is, isn't it? You're faking it like you're somebody, like you're righteous, and everybody knows that you're not. This comes back to our understanding of the work as spiritual. I'm just cleaning bathrooms. Who cares if I'm living a righteous life? Because this is a spiritual thing. I've been quoting from 1 and 2 Timothy a lot because those were letters written to a pastor about how to function in the church. But 2 Timothy 2.21, Paul says this, If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Every Christian servant ought to walk in integrity. This especially applies to the pastors. It also especially applies to those who are going to have some sort of ministry over people, specifically ministering to their souls. But even when it comes to trimming the bushes outside or whatever it is, there needs to be a level of integrity there because we believe that this is holy. Even if you look in the Old Testament, the Levites and the priests would come in. There were some people, their job was to make sure that the Gentiles didn't come into the court of the Jews. They just stood there at the door. Meanwhile, they can hear their buddies back there handling the sacrifices, singing the songs, going into the holy places. There were Levites whose jobs were to clean out the ashes from the fire of the sacrifice. You don't think they ever grumbled once or twice down there? They got their golden dustpan and their golden broom and they're scooping it up and like, this, is, this is not real work. I want to do real ministry. When am I going to serve the Lord for real? But the qualifications for them were the same as the people that handled the sacrifices and went into the holy place. Secondly, these men had ability. They were full of wisdom. I see this not just as general wisdom, although that's important, but a particular skill to do the job. Not every Christian is cut out for every job. That can be nice to hear because there are some places they just want to take you and plug you in somewhere. Well, there has to be a level of ability. And I know that because I was a worship leader for a very long time. And I heard a lot of auditions from people who claimed that they were called to sing. And I had to very respectfully tell them, I don't think you're called to sing. <laughs> Does that mean that they're a horrible person and God can't use them? No, but there, there needs to be a match between what they're doing and what they can do. And your job as a Christian is to find it and then do it. There also is a level of sometimes like we are right now, where there's only a handful of things that really need to be done, that's not my ministry. Who cares? Do it anyway, right? That's why we try to find things that don't require a ton of skill so that everybody can be involved. Everybody can serve. Everybody here can clean. Everybody here can run that PowerPoint. You might think you can't, but I promise you, you can. Not everybody's called to do every job. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7. There are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Varieties of service. That's, that's key. That means not everybody's going to do the same job but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. What has God gifted you to do 
spiritually, but then also just what, what wisdom do you have? What lessons have you learned? How can God use you that way? There are some folks that want to let ability drive the horse. Doesn't matter if you're a Christian. Doesn't matter if you're righteous. Doesn't matter if you're walking with the Lord. If you can do a great job, we're going to put you up there. That's not good. But neither is it good to put the unskilled laborers to work in a place where they're not going to do a good job. Or to say, well, we only have room for one kind of person here. That's not good. There needs to be a level of ability, but hopefully in any church there is a range of things that we all can get involved in. And if you're like, this is what I'm gifted to do and I don't see a spot for it, well then let's talk. Hey, the widows are being neglected. Okay, great. Handle it. We'll talk more about that at the end here. And number three, these men had spirituality, full of the Spirit. They had integrity, ability, and spirituality. Those rhyme, you like that? They had a thriving, active walk with Jesus. They were intimate with the Holy Spirit. Like Jesus, who heard from his Father to know what to do, they said, go find men like that and let them handle it. I stress again that this is spiritual work. Peter calls it waiting on tables. But even then, even to wait the tables, the apostles wanted spiritually gifted men. And there are some people that try to throw themselves into the service of the church so that they can avoid all the spiritual stuff. What's a job I can do on Sunday that ensures I never have to listen to another sermon ever again? What's a job I can do on Sunday that I don't have to be in there during the singing portion because uh, it's, just, it's just not for me? That happens, and that's not good. And I was a youth leader, and whenever we had uh, Sunday mornings, and they'd be serving, and then they'd be dawdling because they didn't want to go in until worship was over, I had to you know, smack them in the back of the head and say, get in there. This is not an excuse to avoid the spiritual side of things. It should all be spiritual. Ephesians 5.18 tells all of us, do not be drunk with wine, that is debauchery, but here's the command, be filled with the Spirit. All of us, every one of us. Pentecost has to be alive in the heart of every servant in the church. Does that mean they have to have a certain spiritual gift or a certain this or that? No, but they need to know God. And if not, then the church will suffer from it, especially the leaders in the church. They found these seven men and they laid hands on them. And this is a great little lesson about how at least we in Calvary Chapel look at ordination. They weren't imparting the, the anointing onto these men. They were recognizing the men that God had already chosen. And that, that's how we look at it here. Who has God already raised up? Let's go find him. Now let's just go grab this guy by the scruff of the neck and say, you're going to be the new widow's distribution guy. It's like, who has God already brought to the forefront? And this is an example for us of how a church ought to function. The body is active. The pastor is leading, but the pastor is backing off and giving room for the whole church to serve. And then the church's job is to find where God has gifted them and to plug the hole. Kind of like in the book of Nehemiah where they were building the wall and there was enemies on the outside. So every man worked on the wall in the section in front of his own house. Right? It's like, where, where do you live? Where are you gifted? Where's your ability? Where's your passion and your heart? Do that. Rather than saying, okay, we need everybody over here. And are there times where we've got we've to put one thing down and if something else gets raised up, we've got to shuffle? Do we need to be flexible in what God tells us to do? Yes. But the point is that the church is functioning like a body, as Paul says. That we're all one part of the body, and when every part works together, that's when the church is at its best. And it worked, because we see in verse 7, the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And check this out. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is another classic Luke summary. He did a lot of these. We're going to see a lot more of them. 
And this is fun. I love that word multiplied because early on we saw addition. They were added to their numbers. And then you saw a little bit of subtraction earlier when the people stopped coming, remember? And Ananias and Sapphira were subtracted from the church. Now things are multiplying. And that's what happens when one man gets out of the way and brings up seven more or however many more. Now the ministry has multiplied. More can be done because there are more hands at the wheel, so to speak. And even the priests are beginning to be saved. This is so cool because you remember we talked about this in the very beginning of Luke, Zacharias, when he was the priest and coming in for his shift. Now, there, there were like 8,000 priests in the land of Israel, and they would do a two-week rotation every year. And so you would work in the temple for two weeks, then you'd go back to your home, and you would handle kind of the day-to-day -day stuff with the people there. You'd probably have a role in the synagogue. And then when your rotation came back, you'd go back again. And so what's happening is the church is in the temple every day, and there are thousands of them. And every two weeks, a new group of priests come in. And now these priests are starting to get saved, and then you bring in a new group, and another group of priests get saved, and then you bring in another. You're starting to see they're impacting the city of Jerusalem. Because you can imagine, they're seeing these Christians come in, and they're sincere in their worship. And they're sincere, and they're following the commandments of the Scripture. And they're studying the Word, and they're listening to these apostles. Meanwhile, they hear the, the high priesthood, who are bought and paid for by the Romans, the Sadducees, they're full of hypocrisy, they're full of jealousy, they don't even believe in the whole Old Testament, they don't believe in miracles, or angels, or resurrection, and they're comparing the two. Which one of these is the truth? Which one's bearing fruit? And so that's going to become a problem for the church later on, and the Sanhedrin is going to finally step in. But for now, it's just good news. So we know what the pastor's priorities are, the ministry of the word and prayer, and then to equip the saints for the work of ministry. By the grace of God, I will do those things. But here's my question for you. How are you being used of the Lord to serve? Each one of you has a task from the Lord. I quote that verse all the time from Ephesians. I know you're sick of hearing it. The Lord has works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's got a to-do list for you. Are you doing it? How are you being used? There are needs that need to be met. Sometimes, oh, that's not really my thing, but that's where they need help. So let's, let's step up and do that. I know all of you either had children or you, I know you were a child at some point, and... <laughs> If you, your kids play sports or you played kids sports, there's always that one dad that sits in the bleachers. Maybe it's a mom, but we'll pick on the dads for a minute. There's always one dad that just can't understand why the coach doesn't do things his way. And he sits in the bleachers and he hollers and he ruins it for everybody. You guys know that guy? You know that guy. And he's loud and he's obnoxious and he can even be foul. Every single game I ever had, baseball, football, basketball, there was one of those guys. They're always there hollering from the bleachers, ruining it for everybody. We can be like that in the church if we're not careful. We're looking at what's going on. We're hollering. We're screaming. Why isn't this being done? That's not right. What about this group? What about this thing? That was the worst sermon I've ever heard. Well, what the Lord tells us to do is get off the bleachers and get in the game. I'll tell you something. It's like if you've ever worked at a restaurant waiting tables before, you are so much more patient with waiters for the rest of your life. Even if they do a terrible job, you'll still tip them because you know they're making like two bucks an hour. It's kind of like that. When you start serving in the church, you become so much more patient with people who are serving, people who are serving you. And I'll tell you what, if you feel like, oh, I don't know if I'm mature enough to serve. I don't know if I'm far along enough in my walk with the Lord. If you want to grow in the, in the Lord, you got to start serving, man. 
that'll step you up quick because all of a sudden you're having to use those gifts and you're having to act out the, the commandments that God's given to you. I think the two fastest ways to grow as a Christian, number one is to go on a missions trip. Number two is to find a ministry in the church and serve there. That's how you meet people. That's how you make friends. That's how you learn to deal with folks. That's how you learn how the church works. It develops a love for what God is doing because now you've been a part of it. Right? I've washed that window. I've babysat that kid. I've been in over there and I know how that works. And it develops a love. It's so important for us to do that. Especially if you're like these guys and you see the widows are being neglected in the daily distribution. You see there's a need that needs to be met. You see there's something that's fallen through the cracks. There's a quote here from John Corson that I love. Talking about this subject, he says, If you're aware of the problem, it could be that you've been called to be part of the solution. The reason you feel the burden, the reason you're aware of the situation, is because God is calling you. That happens a lot. And back home, it was a much bigger church, so this happened way more often, where people would come and say, why isn't this happening? Why aren't we doing evangelism? Well, we are doing evangelism. The radio goes out every day. We've got people who go to the jails. We've got people who go to the schools. And what, what it really would boil down to often was, but, but what about the homeless community? Well, we don't really have anything for the homeless community. Well, we need to because the Bible says this, 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 and that. It's like, hey, you're really passionate about that. Why don't you want to do it? Do you? Well, I, I just think it should be done. I don't really want to get it. And so then it would be like, okay, well, look, we're doing all this other stuff. You're fired up and passionate about it. You're the kind of person that should be involved in something like that. And this is how the church is to function. God brought us together that every church, every church congregation has a unique DNA. We have unique people that are having unique friendships, that have unique giftings and unique passions. One church is going to be rah, rah, rah. We're going to handle this thing. One church is going to be over here doing this and that. And that's good because together we're, we're covering everything. But everybody has to get involved. Everybody has to get engaged. It can be too where you've served for a long time and you're tired. It's tiring to serve. And you start to say things like, well, you know what? I, I've done this for a long time. And there are a lot of people that are very excited. Let's just let them do it. And then you kick back. And I'll tell you, this, this is just my personal experience. This is not from the Bible. I don't have a verse for this. But when, when people come in and the first thing they say is, you know, I think I've served enough. I'm going to stop. That is never the beginning of a good story. It, it never ends well, especially, I'll say, for marriages. When, when a married couple stops serving together, when they stop coming to church together, they stop worshiping together, it, it atrophies very, very quickly. Because the Lord has not called us to be passive, to be just receiving and absorbing, because then all of a sudden you're a customer. You're not, you're not part of the church. And when you've lived a lifestyle of faithfully serving the Lord, and then you stop all of a sudden, your life feels empty and hollow and you start trying to fill it with all this other stuff. And the next thing you know, you're too distracted to come to the church. I've seen that story played out a thousand times. Again, this is not a Bible verse. This is just what I've observed. It protects your walk with the Lord when you're serving because you're not so wrapped up in your own head and your own stuff and everything's not about you. And coming to church is not all about getting your problems solved. And it's not about getting the lesson that you want to hear and is he going to play the songs that I want. Now you're coming and you've got a job to do. You've got people you've got to help. You've got things that have to be done. And when it finishes, you're like, okay. And I got ministered to on top of all that. You know what? It's really not about me. You know, you stand up and you're here to pray with people or something like that. I need someone to pray with me. It's not fair. I'm the one that's having problems today. And then three, four, five people come and you pray for them. And you're like, you know what, Lord? You're, you're good. You're taking care of them. You're going to take care of me too. 
there's a, there's a verse in one of Paul's epistles, and the, I love the, the King James Version, the way it translates it. It talks about the household of Stephanus that said, and the old King James was addicted to the service of the saints. Isn't that a great word? They were addicted to serving people in the church. They were addicted to ministry. Paul said in Romans 12:1, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Take your life, place it on the altar, and say, God, what do you want me to do? That's your spiritual worship. And if I, as a pastor, can devote myself to prayer and the word and to equip you to do your ministry, and if you take hold of your assignment with joy and you do it with skill, that's when you see the Lord begin to raise the capacity of this little fellowship. And you're going to see new victories won the right way by the Spirit of God and by His grace.